Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution. Since the beginning of civilization, humans have been fueled by a desire to avoid the decay that's coming with old age. Today, we spend billions of dollars each year to eradicate cancer, dementia, or diabetes. But even when we find cures for these and other diseases, we still won't change our ultimate prognosis, death. But what if we could? What instead of focusing on diseases, we would focus on eradicating aging and reverse engineering our biological clock? Today, science is on the brink of providing us with the proverbial fountain of youth and the possibility of living radically extended and healthy lifespans. For those who are familiar with the subjects of aging, transhumanism, and futurology, today's guest, Dr. Aubrey de Grey, needs no introduction. He is the biomedical gerontologist known for his view that medical technology will one day allow humans to control the aging process and live healthily into our hundreds or maybe even thousands. In fact, Aubrey has said that the first human being to live to 500 years old may already be alive today. Dr. Aubrey de Grey is the Chief Science Officer of Sense Research Foundation, a California-based biomedical research charity that performs and funds laboratory research dedicated to combating aging. In addition, Aubrey is Editor-in-Chief of Rejuvenation Research, the world's highest impact peer-reviewed journal focused on intervention in aging. summer and I have passionately dedicated the last 12 years of my life to creating the ultimate human experience mentally, physically and spiritually based on the most powerful ancient teachings and cutting edge modern discoveries and technologies. The Superhumanized Podcast is a show committed to sharing what I have learned from the world's leading experts in order to help you achieve your full potential and create your best life ever. Fantastic to have you here. Aubrey, thank you for coming on the Superhumanized podcast. Well, it's my pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Aubrey, you have dedicated decades of your life to the research of aging and preventing it. Please tell us why aging is the biggest health crisis the world is facing. Yeah, I think really the surprising thing is that anyone would need to ask that question because it is completely clear and you know unarguable that Aging is the thing that causes far more suffering in the world than everything else combined. You know, aging is responsible for 70% of all deaths worldwide. It's responsible for at least 70% of all medical expenditure worldwide, probably more like 80%. Um, you know, it, 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 it kills people. That's kind of important. Um, but it, the, the amount of suffering that it causes before it kills people, because it, after all, it tends to kill people slowly, you know, that's the main thing. And I think really the only explanation for why people have any uncertainty about this question is that they have a kind of an incorrect mind, frame of mind about what aging even is. You know, they think, oh, there are these terrible diseases of aging, like Alzheimer's and, you know, atherosclerosis and almost all cancers and so on and so on and so on. 
which are definitely terrible, and let's fix them. But then they think of aging as something completely different that's kind of off limits to medicine and natural and inevitable and universal. And they, they kind of say, well, okay, so, you know, we just got to live with that. It's like, you know, asteroids might hit the earth. We can't do anything about it. So let's just put it out of our mind. And that's ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. I mean, all the other goals of medicine are ethically uncontroversial. Nobody would argue that there's a problem with developing a cure for cancer. Nobody would say, oh, let's stop developing medications for the elderly and let's just let them die a natural, quote, way. Do you think this is kind of thought processes maybe tied to our past uh, where our daily lives were more intertwined with religion? Where does that come from? I would say it's a bit more complicated than that. I would say that it starts from the understanding, which I think civilization has had since, well, since the beginning of civilization, that aging is an unusual type of health condition in the sense that, first of all, it happens much more slowly than infections that kill you, but also it happens at a relatively predictable age. You know, it happens to different people at, slight, at only slightly different ages. So it kind of feels, from a non-biological, non-medical perspective, it feels different from infections. Also, there's absolutely nothing that anyone has been able to do about it until now. So it also feels that it's inherently vastly more difficult to deal with than infections. So people have to kind of psychologically cope with this. They have to find some way to get on with their miserably short lives and make the best of it, you know, without being preoccupied by this terrible thing that's going to happen to them in the future. There are all manner of ways of doing that. One way is to kind of pretend that it's some kind of blessing in disguise, like you to, to pretend that there are other problems that would be created if we somehow solve the problem of aging, and those problems would be so bad that they would be even worse than what we have today, which, of course, you know, tends not to be terribly well thought through, shall we say. Right. And then there's the confusion of aging with death. In other words, basically, you know, just replacing the word aging with the word death in what you're thinking. And that is, you know, very closely tied to religion, which you mentioned a moment ago. People say, okay, well, when we die, we're going to a better place. And therefore, um, you know, it's not such a bad thing. And therefore, aging is also not such a bad thing, which totally doesn't follow. Um, but yeah, really, you know, I think it's all psychological. One way or another, we come up with these completely wrongheaded ideas for why aging is either something that's so immutable that there's no point in thinking about changing it, or alternatively, it's actually a blessing in disguise. So again, there's no point in thinking about changing it as a, as a crutch, you know, as a way of putting it out of our minds and, um, you know, just not having it preoccup being preoccupied by it. Right. And I think it's high time that uh, we people, individuals start rethinking that, reframing that, and also our policymakers start reframing that. I want to talk about this a little bit further down in our conversation, but what actually causes us to age? The biggest thing that I have to get across to people when I start, when, when they don't know anything about this, is that aging is not a mystery. That aging is actually just the same phenomenon inherently in a living organism like you or me, as what it is in a simple man-made machine, like a car or an aeroplane. It's not a phenomenon of biology, like, you know, consciousness or whatever that emerges from. Um, it's, a, it's a phenomenon of physics, that any machine that has moving parts, um, you know, whether or not we call it alive, it's going to damage itself as a consequence of its normal operation. Various changes are going to happen to its 
it's substructure, it's microscopic structure and composition. And those changes don't matter for a long time because the body is set up or the machine is set up, designed to tolerate a certain amount of those changes. But we call those changes damage. And the reason we call them damage is because there is only a certain amount that the machine can tolerate. And eventually there's too much and the machine starts to function less well and eventually not to function at all. Exactly the same for the human body. So really, you know, if one understands that and one accepts that whether or not there is a non-physical component to being human, it doesn't really matter because the physical component, the human body itself is what matters here. Everything, everything non-physical might exist is trapped within the physical right um that you know it's just a machine and therefore all we have to do is the same preventative maintenance that we do on a simple man-made machine right and there are ways we could do that maintenance on the human machine you actually outlined the hallmarks of aging in your book ending aging and at the sense research foundation you and your colleagues are targeting seven particular areas of cellular decay that may be combated, including stem cell exhaustion um, and senescent cells. Can you talk about some of those, please? And as well, tell us about the strategies to prevent these. Yeah, sure. So, um, so yeah, I first put this classification of the problems of aging, the damage of aging. I first put it forward back in 2000. Well, that's when I had the idea. The paper came out in 2002. And it took a long time for the whole idea of this divide and conquer damage repair approach to gain traction within the scientific community. But over the past decade, it certainly has had traction and various other people have come up with different classifications with nine categories or six categories or whatever. Mm -hmm. And um, so the critical thing that I want to get across to, the, to, to your audience is um, that it doesn't really matter how many categories you have. Really what matters is how you choose to classify things because there are thousands of different types of damage that happen in aging and this is just a classification process mm -hmm. and therefore one has to answer the, initially the question what's the point what, what's so good about classifying things actually i still like my own original classification better than the more recent ones and that's because the purpose of my classification is a bit clearer than it is for the other ones the purpose of my classification is to identify the to fix these things, the actual modalities of preventative maintenance. And so my categories for each of them, there is, a, for example, uh, loss of cells. You said stem cell exhaustion, but we can be more general than that. We can say simply loss of cells. So cells dying and not being automatically replaced by the division and differentiation of other cells. And, um, you know, the way to fix that is stem cell therapy, to put cells in that know what to do to divide and differentiate to replace the cells that the body is not replacing on its own. Very generic concept, but that's still useful from a practical medical perspective, because what that means is that if you can figure out how to do one or two stem cell therapies for one or two tissues really well, then you can reuse the knowledge that you gained in the process of developing those therapies because all stem cell therapies have a lot in common, even though they may differ in details. And it's the same with all the other six categories that I outlined. And if I may ask you, so stem cell therapy is, of course, something that now is in the public discourse. People have heard of it. It is something that is available, of course, not 
all over the world. But if you have the money and the know-how, you can have this kind of a treatment done. However, it's still very, very expensive. For people who would like to use, do something for themselves right now, what modalities, what technologies are available that may also be a little bit more affordable? Yeah, right. So here's the thing. Number one, at the moment, you're quite right, high-tech therapies are expensive. Well, high-tech things that are new and experimental tend to be expensive. Mm -hmm. Things that are affordable are affordable because they're easy to produce and cheap to produce, and that typically means they've been around a long time. But that also tells you that they basically don't work, because if we knew how to fix this already, then people like me wouldn't need to exist, right? Um, so to be honest, there isn't a lot that you can do over and above just living the way your mother told you to and not smoking and not getting seriously overweight and having a reasonably varied diet. You know, that's basically it. And, you know, that's a shame. And certainly there are some things that some people can do that will marginally improve on that. But I can't give any specific advice because it's different things for different people. Right. So really, the only generic advice I can give is pay attention to your body and, you know, try and do what your body seems to tell you it likes. Because different people's metabolism is just, you know, subtly different. But here's the thing. The reason why stem cell therapies are so expensive, even though there's actually, you know, there are some stem cell therapies that have been around a long time now, um, is because they, on their own, they don't actually work very well. They don't really work appreciably, you know, you know they don't do anything much that we can't do with supplements and such like. And as such, you know, there's no public pressure to, you know, to cause the improvement in the technology to go faster so that things get cheaper that way, or for that matter, to have taxpayers' money thrown at the whole thing so that at the level of the end user, it's not expensive, even though it is expensive at the beginning. Not, there's not much pressure for that. But that's going to be completely different in the relatively near future when we can combine stem cell therapies with other therapies that, you know, fixing the other aspects of damage in the body. Because that, in combination, will deliver an enormously greater improvement in how long people can stay healthy and therefore how long they can stay alive. And the magnitude of that improvement absolutely determines the magnitude of people's interest in it, people's willingness to pay, people's willingness to vote for taxpayers' money to be spent on it. And on top of all of that, it will pay for itself because people who are not sick are more productive. They can continue to contribute wealth to society. Their kids are no longer having to look after them, so the kids are more productive as well. And, you know, of course, the medicine itself is cheaper than the medicine we spend today. The vast majority of medical expenditure in the, in the Western world especially, but elsewhere too, on just keeping people alive in a poor state of health for a bit longer than otherwise. Superhumanize. I think it's going to be a huge incentive for governments, for politicians and policymakers to actually write it on their banners that they are pushing for affordable, true anti-aging technology because people are going to demand it. And it's also going to be a huge economic factor for countries, you know, just push down the cost that illness causes that is, of course, related to aging. Um, you mentioned something, you talked about uh, supplements and, and eating right. And uh, this, of course, is all very individual. Uh, every body is different. Every metabolism is different. Um, uh, Ray Kurzweil, the uh, futurist, he predicts that the singularity is coming in 2045. And his own way of prepping for that is by eating, oh, oh my God, I mean, I guess I can't even 
I don't even remember a vastly high amount of supplements in order to keep himself in shape until then. I personally am a biohacker. I also am very focused on maintaining and optimizing my uh, body and brain function. In your mind, how much sense does that make? Once these technologies you're working on become available, um, this, this is true repair, not just a little bit of maintenance that somebody like I might be doing. Should I just go ahead and drink vodka and party and bank on the technologies coming soon enough to actually be able to rejuvenate me and keep me in shape for a very long time? It's all a numbers game. It's all a matter of balancing probabilities. And that balance is very different for different people, depending, of course, on how old they are, depending on how healthy they are, depending on a lot of different factors. So it's easy to uh, look at Ray and say, well, okay, Ray takes all these supplements. Aubrey doesn't take anything. Why do they disagree? And the short answer is we don't actually disagree all that much. Because the thing is, Ray and I are on opposite ends of the spectrum of good fortune in terms of uh, how our bodies already are naturally. I have had my biological age tested half a dozen times in various sophisticated ways over the past 20 years, and I always come out ridiculously younger than I actually am. So I'm just a lucky guy. I'm well built. Ray, on the other hand, has a lot of cardiovascular disease in his family. He came down with type 2 diabetes in his 30s, which is, you know, it's not unheard of, but it's rare. And so, you know, he's got a problem. And if you're that kind of person who's drawn a short straw or two, then absolutely there are things that can be done today that are relatively simple because they only have to address certain isolated components of what most people's aging is, components that are, for whatever reason, going a lot faster than they're doing most people. And sure enough, it turns out that Ray was able to develop this supplement regime that completely defeated his diabetes. He's now in his 70s, and as far as I know, he still doesn't have any diabetic symptoms. So, you know, more power to him. But that's no evidence at all that that would be beneficial to other people who, do not, who were not unlucky in the first place. Absolutely. So we all need to do best we can with the body, with the metabolism that we were. And to answer the second half of your question about biohacking. So, I mean, some people are just inherently more risk averse than others. Some people are willing to be early adopters of things and to see what happens. And of course, it's rather good for those of us who are not early adopters, but some people are early adopters because we can benefit from what happens to them. Um, uh, but yeah, that's a very personal choice, and it's really not a medical choice at all. It's a it's a personality thing. Absolutely, I agree with you. Um, I mentioned it before. I'd really like to talk about why it is so vital that politicians and policymakers focus on the topic of longevity now. Please tell us what we will be dealing with once the world actually becomes aware of the very real possibility of drastically extended lifespans. Okay, so you have asked the question in exactly the right way, because it is extremely easy for policymakers and decision makers, whether in government or for that matter, at the, you know, the uh, leaders of industry, to wait and see, to decide, well, okay, this isn't coming yet. Even the most optimistic people like Aubrey de Grey are only saying it's 15 years away. You know, we'll worry about it in 10 years when, it, when, when we have some better idea of how it's coming and what it's going to look like. And that is a very seductive way to think, but it's extremely unwise. Because as you just said, the thing that policymakers and decision makers really need to be anticipating is not the arrival of these therapies, but the arrival of the anticipation of the therapies. In other words, 
there will be, and there is already, in fact, this, the, the murmurings of progress in the laboratory that is sufficient to lead to a change of tone, a change of emphasis of experts in the biology of aging. For the past 15 years, I've been out there pretty much on my own as the only expert in the biology of aging who's going out and saying, listen, the end of aging is coming. But over, only over the past two years maximum, a couple of other people have been coming out saying the same thing. People who, like me, are acknowledged experts in the biology of aging. Now, if you think what I mean by acknowledged experts, I mean people who are experts and they do a lot of public interfacing, a lot of you know, talking to the wider world. There's only about a dozen of us in the world, right? We are in control. We dozen people totally rule. And the thing is, we don't rule individually, we rule collectively. So what matters to people like Oprah Winfrey is what is the center of gravity of what we dozen people say on camera, right? Mm -hmm. They don't care about what one guy with a crazy accent and a beard says, they care about the center of gravity. And that is changing. Now, I believe that with the rate of progress that's happening in our laboratories and in even in the clinical early stage clinical trials, that the tone, the emphasis, the optimism that other people are going to be saying is going to get to a critical tipping point where the public are going to say, it's really true, right? And at that point, overnight, they're going to shift from a mindset that says they're going to live maybe a few years longer than their parents did into a mindset that says they're probably going to live vastly longer than their parents mm. did and that life is going to be all healthy and youthful and everything, right? And that's going to have a big impact at once on their big ticket spending decisions, like yes. what kind of life insurance premiums they want, health insurance, inheritance arrangements, you know, everything you can imagine. So it's going to be completely seismic for the global economy and people had better be ready. People had better have thought that through in advance, really. Now, you may ask, why do I think this is happening? Is it going to happen very soon if it hasn't happened yet? You know, if, if still, you know, my colleagues, the other dozen people are being much more cautious than me. Very simple. I am the only one of that dozen people who was able to get to this level of prominence without selling my soul to peer review basically without having to rely for my research on government grants where I had to kiss ass and generally, you know, persuade people that everything I was doing was terribly safe and, you know, responsible and so on. But, you know, that doesn't mean that these people are cowards. It just means they're trapped in, their, in the system, which I was lucky enough to avoid by forming my own foundation that's funded by philanthropy. And I, I, people I persuade do not have a constituency. They can make their own decisions on giving me money. Uh, yeah, but that's, as I say, the, the science has now moved forward to a point where my colleagues do not need to think that way quite so much. Mm -hmm. So it's no accident that 18 months ago, David Sinclair brought out a book called Why We Age and Why We Don't Have To. But it's also no accident that he didn't bring it out 10 years earlier the way I did. Now, you have always been a trailblazer, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's worth noting that you also put a lot of your own money into your foundation. You've always been independent yeah I got, I got lucky that way my mother died well it's hard it, it, it's unfortunate to say that i got lucky when my mother died but the fact is she died in the right year for me for my for my work in the sense that in 2011 you know it was time to start ramping things up and uh, by inheriting quite a lot of money from my mother's estate because i was her only child and she owned a couple of nice houses in central london 
um, I was able to essentially double the budget of my foundation for five years, 2012 through 2016. It was very, very well spent, that money. Yeah. Um, and yes, you know, I'm, I feel, you know, I feel good about having been able to do that. I've never had expensive taste myself. So I only held on to like 20% of my inheritance. And you know, I bought a nice house, but that's all. I, uh, you know, I, I feel that I've been able to lead by example that way. And certainly there are now plenty of people who are coming along doing the same thing. Yeah, people and uh, slowly also uh, public opinion is following suit with the things you've already been speaking about for 20 years. Now, a lot of people, because they confuse aging with sickness and they still haven't wrapped their head around that longevity, a really drastically um, expanded lifespan, living healthily is a good thing. I think it's important we talk about how that that's not a bad thing, getting really old. We need to um, really uh, underline how society and our economic systems would benefit from a really healthy older uh, population. Can you give us a few examples why this is an extremely good thing? I mean, one thing that comes to my mind is people with drastically extended lifespans, we can benefit from their wisdom. You know, this whole um, library of knowledge won't die off with them passing too early. So, so I think that argument is true, that it's good to preserve wisdom that way. But I don't think it's a very strong argument because ultimately, you know, other technologies are perfectly good at preserving wisdom. We can get better at, you know, machine at, at learning from, um, you know, uh, computers, you know, at, at having other technologies transmit information from people who are no longer with us. So I don't really, I think that that's a problem that can be solved pretty well by alternative technology. Mm -hmm. The thing that, it, that strikes me as the most important thing, if we just stick to economics for the moment, is simply the fact that old people who are sick are incredibly expensive. And we're talking about a world in which we will have far more chronologically old people, but essentially no biologically old people. Mm -hmm. And that's what's expensive. So inherently, we end up being far more prosperous as a society just because of that. That's the main thing to focus on. Superhumanize. And another point that critics like bringing up is that longevity advances may only give the very wealthy a chance to cheat death. I think personally it'll be of great benefit for all of humanity and that we can't keep this knowledge and technology from future generations. It wouldn't be ethically right. Um, and a lot of people also ask, what about the planet? Can Earth cope with people living so long? I think this is because they think of overpopulation as a problem that's actually not. Can you give us your argument for why overpopulation will not be a problem when people get much older? The two concerns that you've just listed there are the two most common concerns. And one of the things that would be really funny if it were not so tragic is that people are very fond of bringing up both of those concerns in consecutive breaths, yeah. you know, without even realizing that they are mutually exclusive, because like how many kids can the billionaires of the planet have, you know? Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, so there are very easy answers to both of these questions. The answer to the question of this thing being restricted only to the wealthy is the answer I gave earlier about how these things will pay for themselves so fast, so many times over, that it will be in the pure mercenary economic interest of countries to ensure that they front load the required to, to, to give these things to everybody who is old enough to need them, essentially as soon as they're ready to be given to anybody. 
you know, this is a very, very straightforward economic argument. It doesn't rely on even the electoral imperative, the fact that it's going to be pretty hard to get elected unless you commit to doing this. And it certainly doesn't rely on the humanitarian imperative, which we know is not terribly reliable in determining what governments actually do. So, so yeah, the economic imperative is all we need to lean on there. In terms of overpopulation, of course, the answer there is that today we have a bad overpopulation problem in the form of climate change. We have bad things happening as a result of the amount of greenhouse gases being released by anthropogenic activity. But the fact is, we're fixing that on the ground. We are reducing the greenhouse gas emissions because we are, we are developing technologies that make renewable energy cheaper to produce than um, fossil fuels which means that even without the apparently very difficult challenge of persuading humanity that climate change matters, mm -hmm. um, we're still going to solve it just by people preferring to pay less for their electricity. Of course, it's not just that. It's also the agriculture aspect, the fact that we're now developing artificial meat, which will within certainly 15, 20 years before um, longevity technologies start to really have an impact on demography, um, we will have technologies that make artificial meat cheaper and tastier than regular meat. So that's another sort of greenhouse gas is gone, right? Yeah. And of course, we can go on, you know, there's cheap desalination, there's uh, bacteria that eat plastics, things like that. So really, you know, we have, all we have to recognize is that every aspect of overpopulation as we currently know it is a problem of pollution, not a problem of having enough space. And therefore, we are already solving these problems far more rapidly than any trajectory of global population increase that could possibly be, 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 be predicted. So really, you know, we have to look and say, OK, eventually, how soon would we end up with a situation where it really was a problem of space, you know, where we had maybe upwards of 100 billion people on the planet? And you can just do the numbers. It's going to take a very long time to get to that. So... You know, it's, it, what is immoral, what is completely unethical, is to say we should not be alleviating suffering today because of our assumptions about how the world might be in the very distant future, centuries and centuries into the future. The reason that's unethical is very straightforward. We have no idea. An awful lot happens in 100 years, let alone a few hundred years, in terms of new technologies, new changes in, public, in, in attitudes and preferences of humanity. We have no idea. Therefore, mm. it's completely unethical to put ourselves in the position of the distant future and say, OK, we think we know what those people are going to think. Therefore, let's not alleviate suffering today. Agreed 100%. As far as the probability of people living 130 or even 150 years plus, in theory, what is your gauge? How far are we from reaching that? So the way I ask, answer this question is with relation to this thing that I call longevity escape velocity, which is a phenomenon that essentially talks about how fast we need to get better at damage repair. Mm -hmm. At the moment, we are improving incrementally in damage repair. We are getting close to developing therapies. And maybe in the next five years, 10 years, we'll be at a point where we can do quite a lot of damage repair in people, not just in mice in the laboratory. But probably it'll be about 15 years before we get to the point where we can do sufficiently comprehensive damage repair that we actually keep people healthy in a useful state for substantially longer than normally they would be. So let's say 20 or 30 years longer than normal. And that is the critical tipping point. Because if we can do that, we've brought ourselves time. And I say ourselves, I mean scientists like me. 
I mean people who are continuing to improve those therapies. It allows the scientists to improve them so that when the same people, the same people need to get re-rejuvenated because they've got they've built up difficult damage to fix, the therapies will have been improved as well to keep pace, to keep to stay one step ahead of the problem. So I believe we have a 50-50 chance of reaching that point within about 15 years from now. Mm-hmm. Certainly at least a 10% chance that we will not get there for another 100 years. But that's fine. 50% chance is quite enough to be worth fighting for. And once we get there, game over. There is no reason why we should not live indefinitely. Just mm. in the same way that a vintage car that was designed to last for 10 years and has now lasted 100 years already, you know, that could last another 100 years and, and longer without any problem. That's what we should be looking for. We should be looking to reach what some people have called the methusalarity, the point where we achieve longevity and escape velocity. Yes, looking for and looking forward to it makes me feel really good because uh, people, you know, in their 40s, 50s, or even 60s might very well benefit greatly from these technologies once they arrive. And Aubrey, okay. there's uh, something I ask every guest on this podcast. Um, if you would be willing to share, are there any practices that have uh, benefited you in your life, mentally, physically, or spiritually? I'm really the wrong person for that question. Here's why. I have been very successful in my goal in life, which is to contribute to the solution of a really important problem for humanity. But the point is, I'm the spiritual leader of this field. People come up to me in the streets to congratulate me on what I'm doing and to say how much they appreciate it and all that. It's very easy for me to, you know, to maintain a high self-esteem and determination and all of that. So the people I really look up to are not people like me, they're the foot soldiers, the people who work just as hard as me, uh, some of the people who work for me, of course, um, you know, but lots of other people who are just as dedicated to this crusade. And, um, you know, they don't get that. They're just self-motivated. So, you know, those are the people I admire the most. Excellent. Well, Aubrey, great closing words. I'm very grateful that you've been my guest today. I know you're a very busy man. Thank you for sharing your time and your insights with us. Again, thank you for having me on the show. Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution.